Amen. Amen. I love that guy's enthusiasm. It's great. So good to see you guys this morning. And uh, so many uh, of you remembered to brush your teeth and are not wearing your masks. That's great. And uh, we have some people in the cars, I think, this morning. Okay, a couple out there. Praise God. Thank you for joining us. So we're going to jump right in this morning. Uh, and uh, I think uh, we're going to be a little bit... I, I, I didn't know quite how to put this sermon together. And uh, that's a great way to introduce a sermon, isn't it? Um, but I'm going to ask you to put your thinking cap on and think about these things. About what it means to enter into the kingdom of God and specifically about the resistance you have to believing the words of Jesus and to trusting the reality that God has got me. God's got me, he's gonna take care of me. So encouragement comes to us a lot of different ways. And uh, if you, some of you saw last week, uh, I was standing up here and all these kids marched in and they gave me these envelopes. And you were, some of you were curious about that. I didn't know what was going on. But I had so much fun last week getting to open those and uh, be encouraged by our little people. And uh, some of them made me tear up, actually. Some of them, there was some association between Calvin and Hobbes that was a big theme, and uh, it was kind of fun. But here's one of my favorites. To Calvin by Sterling. He's a man of few words, if you know <laughs> And so, uh, but he gave me a few that I really appreciated. Calvin, good job. <laughs> and across there, that was great. So last week we talked about the Beatitudes and how I think those kind of, that teaching falls into a category of Jesus talking about and teaching against the prevailing assumptions, the prevailing assumptions we have. Who's in, who's out? Who's blessed, who's not blessed? Who's first, who's last? And, uh, and so I maybe challenge some of our thinking to not just look at the Beatitudes as an if-then equation. If I do this, then I will get this. But those blessings are blessed. Those conditions are blessed. Our circumstances are blessed uh, because of the presence of the kingdom of God was my point. Because Jesus says, you are blessed when you mourn. Because Jesus says, you are blessed when you are pure in heart. So the point that I was making was this. The kingdom of heaven will give blessing, it will give beatitude to dispositions and circumstances that the world probably doesn't recognize or necessarily appreciate. In fact, they can even be hostile against but this includes our circumstances. Think about your own beatitudes for your life. The situations where you assumed God is not present, God's not helping, God doesn't care, God doesn't see. Somehow the truth of the kingdom is even in those places, you are blessed. But another blessing of Jesus' teaching in the beatitudes, and this is a theme that you find again and again in the Sermon on the Mount and other places, Another way I can summarize Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes is God sees you. 
Whatever your circumstance is, God sees you. God knows what you're going through. He sees you. And so all the things that we do as humans, we don't have to do necessarily as, as uh, people who live in the kingdom. Because as a human being, in human relationships, in human circumstances, sometimes I have to go clamoring for attention. In the kingdom of God, you don't have to go clamoring for attention. You don't have to make a big stink when something happens that you don't like. And you don't have to lose sleep wondering, am I going to get my fair shake? Am I going to get what I deserve? Am I going to miss out? In the kingdom of God, you're freed from that. Jesus is telling us, God sees you, God knows you, and God will bless you. The extent to which you trust this Trust it and really live that as a reality is, I would say, the extent to which you have already begun stepping into the kingdom of God. And when you live from that reality, can you see how you are free in different ways? And this culture says it's just not possible. It's not possible to be free like that. So we're going to try to think a little more philosophically about uh, the kingdom of God and I want to explore the question, why isn't it easier? Why doesn't God make it easier for us to see him, to figure things out, to trust in the circumstances that he is there, that he sees, that he knows, that he can do something about it? Because I don't know about you, but one of the things I noticed as I try to step into the kingdom uh, one of the things I noticed when I was baptized is suddenly all of my problems didn't go away. Suddenly everything wasn't magically easy. There wasn't a sudden free get out of jail free card. Free get out of jail free card. Because some people come to church and, uh, and, and think that suddenly, aha, I found something that's going to bail me out. Something that's going to make all my selfish wants and desires come about. All of the things that I had hoped for, that'll be coming to fruition. You see, God taking care of you doesn't mean that you get everything you want. Have you noticed that? That's a tough pill for us to swallow. Because you say Jesus Christ is Lord, doesn't mean you suddenly, in this moment, get everything you want or hope for or desire. You think you've signed up for a celebrity cruise you find out that you've been drafted into an army. But Jesus doesn't veil this in the, late, in the least bit. He's very clear about this. So we are in this war of sorts. So it's kind of interesting. I didn't know that science fiction as a genre started as early as it did. And the first uh, book that talked about alien invasions in... Uh, was one by this guy named H.G. Wells in The War of the Worlds. I didn't realize this was published first in 1898, uh, talking about Martian invaders coming. And uh, it's probably one of the most notable things about this that dramatized this book was in 1938, uh, Orson Welles 
was uh, dictating this story on the radio, and people tuned in, and they didn't know that it wasn't real. And uh, there was a lot of commotion, and people were freaking out at this war of the worlds that had begun. And people were trying to wrap their heads around that and what this means and everything. Well, we live in a war too. We live in a war of kingdoms. And it is the kingdom of God versus every other kingdom that has ever existed, that ever exists now, and ever will exist. I don't know how many billion people are on this, on this planet. There's more kingdoms than there are people even. It's just because you embrace the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean you don't have to deal with other kingdoms. Other kingdoms are constantly competing for your attention and your allegiance. They demand your time, they demand your attention, they demand your money. And keep in mind, uh, uh, not all of these kingdoms print money or levy taxes or draft people into an army. Some of us have kingdoms in our workplaces, a political structure, a game we have to play, rules of who is in and who is out. Some of us go to schools and, and have a school experience that have kingdoms of sorts. Your own household, there's a kingdom of sorts. Your own life where you're like, I got this. I get to make the calls. I get to make the shots. You're choosing the kingdom of self. That's a big kingdom there. So all of these competing kingdoms are out there in existence right now, all trying to tell you, uh, you need this, and uh, we'll take care of this for you, and uh, act now for the life that you've always wanted, for three easy payments of $29.99. And for our first hundred callers, we'll throw in uh, three car air fresheners valued at $20. All of these kingdoms competing for our allegiance and our attention. And here comes Jesus, and the deal he offers is whoever seeks to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will find it. And many who are first are going to be last, and many of those who this world considers last, they will be first. But for those of us who have taken Jesus at his words and accepted the kingdom that he offers, uh, we don't trust it all at once. We try to hedge our bets. We, we test it out, test the water, so to speak. We try it on, see how it is to wear a belief like that. In fact, I think a lot of us... Uh, have a hard time believing that God sees, believing that God knows, believing that God will bless. In fact, Jesus knows we have such a hard time believing this that he has to get very explicit about it. And so he has to get very clear. He says, uh, do not worry about your life. Okay, Jesus says that. How many of you have worried about your life? No, I, I got it the first time I heard that. 
I never worry, never about anything. If worrying was a paid profession, I would be amongst the richest people in the world. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? So that's a kingdom reality Jesus is describing. And Paul describes that same kingdom reality in Philippians chapter 4 when he says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, the reason why Jesus has to say what he says, why Paul has to say what he says, is because sometimes we have a hard time believing that God sees, that God knows, that God has Calvin's best interest at heart. But they're describing a reality of the kingdom of God, and in that reality there is a, there is a king who blesses what no one else will bless. And when we have faith, faith is trust. When we live by trust that God sees, God knows, God will take care of it, God will take care of me, when you live by faith like that, you're free. You're free to live like the sparrows. You're free. You know, I'm so free, I don't even have to keep track of the number of hairs on my head anymore. God, I can trust you for that. Faith is not something static. It's something dynamic. It grows and changes over time. Things that were once hard for me to believe, I believe in different ways now because I've had different experiences There are things that I trust that I used to not trust. I, I remember the times I was just like, you know, I don't want the church. I don't want it. I'm a man for the church now because I trust Jesus. See, faith may start as the size of a mustard seed, but it doesn't stay the size of a mustard seed grows into something beautiful and large and strong. See, when we reflect on our lives, on our history, our circumstances, when we see all of the good things that come to us and that just keep coming, all the grace, all the help, all the beatitude of God that comes to us even amidst our difficult circumstances, our trust grows, and as we build that history of trusting the Lord, that trust grows into more trust and bigger things. 
And you see, that's part of our journey of sanctification because a heart that can trust God sees and God knows and God will take care of me, that heart has become childlike, has it not? My daddy sees me. My daddy has everything I know. I need to. He's going to take care of all of these problems and all these circumstances. Is that not childlike? I like this version that says, unless you are converted. See, we have to fight for it, don't we? You just automatically believe everything good and it's all going to work out. Some people have faith like that. Praise God. Some of us, like myself, it's a long, windy road. It's a pilgrimage, but I learn things along the way. Unless you, become, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So why is it so hard for us to trust God like this, to go all in, all chips in the middle of the table? Why is it so hard for me to have faith that beatitude will meet me and be there for me when I need it most? So we need to talk a little bit about this because it's a challenge you, we all face. Uh, and one of the pro- ways, reasons this is a problem is that we're all trained to live our life like this world is all we have. This is all we got. This is all that's guaranteed. And we're not even guaranteed how long we're going to have it. Just make the most of it. Get the most, take the most, win the most, eat the most have the best list of experiences. Serve yourself. And even most Christians live like this. Uh, And then we just hope that we have done enough, said enough, that when we come to the gates of heaven and there's angels there running the TSA checkpoint, The sin scanner. We're all going to go through the sin scanner. And the angels are going to be running it, right? Up. Oh, this one's got concealed, concealed sin. <laughs> They've been hiding it away. And we just hope that the alarms don't go off. Blood of Jesus, cover me. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? And he will say, I never knew you. See, it's all about a relationship. And if you're trying to just get the insurance policy to get in, you might skate in. I don't know. The grace of God is beyond what I think is fair or what I can comprehend. But I think Jesus' message is more than a life insurance policy to enter maybe someday. And yet that's what we've done to the teachings of Jesus. Just give me the barcode so that I can pass the scanner and I can get in. Otherwise, leave me alone so I can take care of business here. I've got to run my life. Thank you. Why is it so hard to trust Jesus' words that God is going to take care of us? 
And so I was thinking about that this week. This is Calvin's little list. I'm sure if I thought more about it, I can think of other things. Lack of empirical evidence. Why is it that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? And there's not immediately apparent any, like, advantage that we get. Well, if you think about it enough and you live it long enough, you know there is huge advantages. Those who live a godly life with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior at the center of everything, we get, we get freedom. We get, we get wisdom. We get saved from so much of the garbage of this world that comes from trying to live things your way right away. I am the king of my own destiny. Thank you very much. But let me talk about this a little bit, this, this lack of empirical evidence. And then number two, most of us do everything we can to avoid a situation where we're forced to trust in God. And then finally, we just, we don't understand the heart of our Father. I think I know how to take care of Calvin better than God does. For comfort, for pleasure, for whatever it is. And that's something each of us struggle with. We have to figure that out. So let's talk about this first one, lack of empirical evidence. God does not typically deal in the irrefutable and the undeniable. Most of us don't have a Saul kind of conversion. Most of us have not witnessed with our own eyes a Mount Elijah and Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal kind of experience. God's interactions with us typically are a lot more subtle. He doesn't overwhelm. You see, what, what God has done is he's given each one of us the keys to our own heart. Everyone in this room has the keys to their own heart. Even you kids and your, your young people, you're struggling for that. I want, I want to be in charge. I want to make the choice. As soon as I get the choice, I'm never coming back here. And that's why praying for people's heart to change, it's so difficult. It's so hard because God has given a will and a choice there and he doesn't force himself on anyone. He woos us. He gives us good things. He sits back and he waits patiently for us. And we each of us get to interpret our own life circumstances, don't we? So the same thing can happen to two different people, and one is like, oh, that was lucky, I guess, and the other sees the hand of God and the providence of God is taking care of us. God is providing for us. You get to interpret those things. Did you know that? A lot of people attribute the good things in their life to my own looks, or smarts, or wit, or cunning, random chance, just dumb luck, 
Some people, I would rather credit karma than have to deal with the possibility of a loving God who gives freely. Ooh, that's too much. No, that's karma. So, say for example, you've been needing a job, and you've been looking for a job, and nothing works out, just dead end after dead end, and about the time you're ready to give up, and you're not actively searching anymore, well, maybe I got this, this might work a little bit, you run into an old friend that you went to school with uh, from a, in a different state, hundreds of miles away, and they ask you what you're doing, and then they tell you about a job in your specific area of training and expertise. One person can interpret that as a random, happy coincidence. Just lucky, I guess. And another one can see that same circumstance and see clearly the Lord is providing, the Lord is giving, the Lord is taking care of me. One interpretation leaves you with no one to thank. And the other interpretation, it grows gratitude and thanksgiving. See, most of us don't stop very often to think about why things are so good. We all cry out a lot when things are bad, but do you think about why things are so good? Every one of us. You can try to play the game of having a victim mentality, but you got it good. Why does this food taste so good? You ever notice how enjoyable God made it to eat food? Why does that good night's sleep and that stretch in the morning feel so good? Sexual bliss. Satisfaction over a job well done. A house that's been filled with children's laughter. Why is it so good? How often do we stop and ask this question? When was the last time you laughed so hard that you cried? I love it when my wife laughs so hard she starts crying. She can't say anything. She just, it's wonderful. When was the last time that you cried so hard that you laughed? See, the truth about humanity uh, is that we don't treat God with a lot of thanksgiving and gratitude compared to what he gives and constantly gives and continues to give. And we kind of treat God like this, sitting there, arms crossed. God, if you show me, if you give me empirical evidence, then maybe I'll give you faith. Everyone approaches God that way and does that. That's not right. But God doesn't leave us there. He continues to love. His patience is a miracle to me. So a story maybe to illustrate this. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. 
As he was going into a village, ten men came who had leprosy, and they met him. And they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, he came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Your faith. Most people's blindness to God isn't because of a lack of empirical evidence. Most people's blindness to God is because of a lack of heart. A lack of heart. This second point. We do everything we can to avoid situations where we're forced to rely on God. We can't avoid it always. We lose jobs, we get in bad circumstances, can't control everything, we can't control every person around us. People pass on. See, we don't want to rely on anyone for anything. And we can't trust anyone for anything if we can help it. And that's why, one of the reasons why we have such a problem dying in our culture. Why people have such a problem with death. Because it's that dreaded moment when we're first forced to turn loose of everything. That's the moment you are forced to realize whether you've been hiding from it all your life or not, that you control nothing. You don't control nothing. Death is our place of greatest need because that's where we're forced to turn everything loose. And if Jesus doesn't come and meet us in that place, there's nothing. So one of the interesting things about being a church planter in Africa for 14 years is, uh, and this helped my faith a lot, they, I, I cannot describe to you the hardships these people went through. Most of them are living on a dollar or two dollars a day. The stuff I saw over the course of years sometimes is just horrible and heartbreaking. And yet, they are the most joyous people I've known in my entire life. So joyous. And I think some of it comes back to you know, in Luke's gospel, he says, blessed are the poor. The Lord has his eye on the poor. These poor people, they are forced to rely on God in a way that is just foreign and sounds awful to us. 
I'm not saying go seek out hardship. I'm saying that there's a reality that God shows up. When you're at the end of your rope, when I'm at the end of my lifeline, holding on and there's no other choices, we run from those situations, don't we? So I remember uh, we did a famine relief work at one point, it was so bad in the villages that we went, all the children, the distended bellies, the malnutrition. Uh, I think it was getting to a point where they, families were eating one meal every two or three days. And uh, uh, I remember being out in the village and I'm sitting there at the table and they have this culture of hospitality that just does not quit. It's, I mean, it's a mystery to me in and of itself. And they have not fed their kids in three days, and yet they put this plate, this big plate of food in front of me, and I could not eat it. Because I know that every morsel of food that was going into my mouth was being withheld from these kids, and they kept pushing me, no, eat, eat, eat. And uh, at one point, this dog comes in as we're sitting around this little table in the short chairs, and this dog is getting blown. I mean, they're hitting this dog, and this dog is so close to death that it just it takes the punishment and the blows to be able to pick up a morsel of food on the corner of the table that was dropped there. It was that bad. So we form this uh, famine relief kind of thing. We cry out to uh, some of our churches, me and my coworker, Eric. I don't even remember the year that we did this, but... Uh, so we cried out to churches that we had association with, our church in Tennessee, their church up in, uh, I think, southwest, and uh, different places pleasant uh, in Arkansas where we got our support from, and we just asked our friends, and suddenly we had $30,000 that we could get, kind of just address the worst of the worst situations that we saw. And so logistically, we were trying to figure out how we're going to get food to these people, and so we hire uh, we pay for it and buy grain from Uganda and they ship it on barges down to Tanzania and then we hire trucks to go out and distribute it. Well, our first day out for distribution, that food was so desperately needed and they, uh, they measure out and we were trying to give about a month's worth of bandwidth for people to be able to get to just survive the worst until the harvest came in uh, after a failed harvest uh, that just get something to get by a little bit and after the food had been distributed there was uh, just little bits left on the ground uh, of corn that, that had fallen out of people's bags and was on a tarp there mixed with dirt and other things and people were trying to go up there and glean that and they were desperate to get those gleanings to add to that little bit of reserve that they had and the guys who were in the truck, who had the grain there, they were like, no, you've already gotten your allotted amount. This is not for you. This is ours. And a fistfight broke out. And these starving villagers and these guys with the truck. And I have, you know, I was a younger guy. I didn't think about stuff like this. I ran into the, the middle of that. And I, grabbing these people who are punching these faces and throwing them apart, finally get them separated. And... I said, I will pay you for these gleanings. Let them take what they want. And they did. And as they're sifting through the, it was more dirt than corn. They were laughing. They were joyous. Uh, 
we get to eat tonight. When you live life in that place where the sparrows live, you learn how the Lord shows up. We do everything we can to avoid that if we can. And then uh, number three, we don't trust that God has our best interests at heart. Can you think of a story in the Bible uh, that talks about people who think they know better than God? Can't think of any. Yeah, there must not be any in there. Every, every sin is an instance where somebody thinks they know better than God. Does the Bible talk about sin? How about you? Have you had any experience with sin? Nope, never. Good for you. Stay in your kingdom. You don't need anything. We don't trust that God has our best interests at heart. So Luke 15, 11 through 32, the, the story of the prodigal son. I'm not going to read it because uh, I've used most of my time. What is that inheritance that that young son asks for? I think when I think about that and I read it as a parable, I have a good and precious life that I've been given. And I want to make the shots and I want to make the calls and I squander it. How many of you have squandered resources? How many of you have squandered time that you've been given? How many of you are paying more attention to children right now than the words I'm speaking? Put your hand down, Rob. But you know what about our Father? Jesus has to teach us this because we just have a hard time believing that God sees and God's going to take care of us. And so he says, you know what my Father's like? He is scanning his eyes on the horizon, waiting for you to realize that you're trying to eat pig slop and he's got a banquet prepared for you. And when he sees you start coming, he doesn't wait. He goes running to you. And then there's another son. And that other son also thinks that same thought. I know how to better to take care of myself. God is holding out on me. My Father is holding out on me. The Father goes to that Son too. Goes to that Son too. And says, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. So let's close this morning with that question that we began with. Why is it so hard to trust Jesus' words that God's going to take care of us? God could have made it easier, but he didn't. He could be less ambiguous, less hidden, more overt. He could make himself so obvious that we had no choice but to believe him. With a word, he could take out any competing kingdom there is. Boom, it's gone. If God wanted to, he could write the Ten Commandments on the cloud every morning for us to get up. Oh, I forgot about that. I, I need to listen to that. 
And every time someone broke a ten, one of the Ten Commandments, boom, on the spot, they would fall down dead. Do you think that wouldn't get conformity rather quickly? God is not interested in spiritual robots. There's a po- think about it this way. There is a point to you searching, to you being uncomfortable, to you struggling, for you growing, because he wants us to freely choose him. He wants us to freely... Think about this verse in Hebrews. Uh, I can't quote it exactly, but... Uh, Um, It's talking about Jesus. He learned obedience through what he suffered. If the sinless Son of God needed to learn through suffering, how much more so you and I in our troubled condition? a A free will must be pretty important to God. Have you ever thought about what it costs God? I think it sure costs them a lot because most people will blow the inheritance of their lives, their gift of years, on selfishness and trivialities. But unless there is a free will, unless I'm given a real choice, I don't think there can be real love because of the way love works. So, BP, you can come up here. We're done. We're just singing a song, Oh, to be like thee. Most of us fight to live up to the truths that we profess. And finding the truth, it takes so much hard work, so much time, and so much effort that typically our character is changed along the way so that the time we finally find the truth, we can stand it. And we actually want it. Have you heard of this phrase, a confession of faith? What is a confession? Confession is owning up to crimes. Owning up to crimes. And it usually hits us like this. You know what? I actually believe this. I actually believe Jesus' words as much to my surprise as to everyone else's. That he is who he said he is. That God sees me. That God knows that God will take care of me. I actually believe this. See, the saints of God, I I think they're not, and I'm using saints in the broadest sense of the word, they're not saints because they've been shown more or given more than other people. They're just willing to trust more, persevere more, and pay more as they try to keep stepping into the kingdom of heaven that God makes available to them. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. When you have a heart that's fully committed, promise of this verse is the Lord will see you, the Lord will find you. And he will give you strength. What is strength? It's power. It's the power you need to deal with the circumstances and the things you're going to. 
uh, going through in your life. We've got resistance. We've got to learn how to do this as a community that we overcome that resistance. And we live in the glorious freedom and the resources of the kingdom of God. So whatever your needs are this morning, uh, for the prayers of this church, if you want to put the Lord on in baptism and start that journey into progressive, greater and greater freedom, you always have an opportunity to share with me. Give me a call during the week. Come up to me at the front here and share it with the congregation if you need to. We give you that chance while we uh, stand and sing together.